Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nesh Nicklich and my guest today is Sally Kenny. Sally is an educational and developmental psychologist who specializes in working with children and adolescents. She holds a master's degree in educational psychology, is a member of the Australian Psychological Society, a fellow of the College of Educational and Developmental Psychologists and a member of the APS Psychologists in Schools Interest Group. Sally has over 16 years of experience working in schools and has supported students with a wide range of learning, social and emotional challenges. It's been a pleasure to speak with Sally today about all things psychology related in schools and also wider with regards to the need for psychology in the community, in schools and also in supporting staff within schools as well. I hope you really enjoy this episode as I did immensely speaking with Sally. Sally, a big thank you for coming on to the show today. No problems. Thanks for having me. As you know, uh, one of my passions is getting guests on to talk about their passions. Uh, it tends to be a format that works really well for us to, to learn about people in, in, in their industry. You know, obviously, our world is psychology. There, there are special interests that we have. There are passions that we have. There's, there's things that we, we are um, value-driven around. And so, you know, I extend that out to you as well, and, and I'm excited to have this conversation today to find out more about you and, and your passions. Yeah. Well, I am uh, speaking to you from school at the moment, so you'll hear all sorts of noises and bells and emails popping in every now and then, so I apologise in advance, but um, I love being here. I'm absolutely, you know, really passionate about working in education. Um, I'm so fortunate I get to work in a K-12 school um, down here in Melbourne and, you know, any given day I can be doing, I can be observing three-year-olds in the ELC or talking to 18-year-olds in Year 12 across my day in terms of, you know, interactions with students, working with teachers, parents, you know, leadership. It's just, it's such a beautiful varied role. Um, So it's pretty doesn't get boring it's never stale it's um, very very busy as you could probably imagine but really diverse and so I think it gets gives me an opportunity to really use a lot of my skills as a psychologist across a range of context in one place yeah I love it fantastic and how many students are at your school uh 810-ish yeah so it's quite small um we have in our senior school, so anywhere between 80 and 100 in a year level. So um, you do get to know the students really well, which is, yeah, it's really nice for them. It's nice for us. 
Um, so yeah, on the small side, um, as far as schools go, I've worked in other schools, you know, two and a half thousand. Um, this, this is, yeah, it's nice, comfy. Yeah. That's, that, that, that's incredible. Cause when you first said 800, uh, I felt the uh, weight of that saying, my goodness, that's, that's a lot of, um, you know, bodies to, to be aware of and, yeah. and you know, to, to potentially see throughout the, the, the day or year as, as, as it goes or their journey. Um, yeah. but then when you say 2,500, wow, that's, mm. that's, uh, uh, you know, a big difference. How, yeah. how does it work in that space? Obviously not all of our listeners, uh, have been exposed to what it looks like to be, to be a school counsellor, psychologist. Yeah. Can you talk us through a little bit about the role, uh, what that looks yeah. like? And, and obviously, you know, uh, that might be quite different from 800 or, you know, 2,500 because I imagine uh, what you end up doing on the ground is different if you're looking after 2,500 versus 800. Yeah, that's right. And um, look, the, obviously, the nuts and bolts of the role is always going to be that you know, direct you know, child support, so working individually with, with students. Um, I'd probably be about maybe 70% of the time that's what we're doing. Um, I've, I have a colleague as well, so I'm not here by myself. Um, I was the only psychologist for a while, but um, I have another psychologist who works with me a few days a week too, um, which is an absolute treat because she's a gem and we get to work together because you know it can be quite challenging when you're the only person who does what you do in the school um so yeah a lot of that one-on-one student you know counseling sort of work um there's a lot of sort of you know making sure within that that we're organizing referrals to other um organizations and professionals in the community where needed so um there are some students who come to see us once or twice and we arrange for them to have their needs met in a more appropriate setting. Um, and then, But then we will work with those external professionals as well. So there's a lot of that consultation part of the role. Um, we do some advising on policies and procedures and you know, what happens there. I get quite involved in um, child safe standards implementation and child protection policies and, and that kind of thing. Um, we support curriculums, designing curriculum and programs. We do staff professional development. We work with parents, um, presentations for parents or organising. I work really, I'm so lucky here, I get to work really closely with our marketing department and we have a range of different speakers that come in. So, but that's informed from our work with the students and with the discussions with parents to sort of say, well, what are the issues that parents, you know, want to find out more about and then help source good speakers for that. Um, that's kind of, you know, I'd, I'd do a little bit of all of that probably within the course of most days. That's very varied and, 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 and broad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And look, I've worked in other contexts where it's not like that, um, where it is basically just one after the other individual counselling. Um, which, you know, obviously the, the need's always there. But I find, I, personally, I find this part of the role really, really satisfying to be able to, you know, get your teeth in. Because really our role as psychologists into schools is that we're working with schools to create an environment where good mental health and flourishing can happen. And there's so many ways that we can impact that, bringing our psychology skills beyond just 
individual students with difficulties, we, we can contribute right across the board. And, and we, you know, when we find schools like the one that I'm in that understand that and they they want you to do that and help, you know, create that flourishing environment, it's just really satisfying. That's one of the most exciting things as a psychologist that I see is where we find environments that are open willing or or able to see the value that a psychologist can bring to have a psychological perspective as to you know how do we bring a nourishing environment forward rather than just doing crisis work for example um you know they're they're poles apart they're both in in great need and one's Mm. not more important than the other uh but i think equally they they have you know uh, really significant roles to, to to play. So it sounds like it's a lovely environment that you're yeah. in at the moment um, mm. to be able to look at everything from policy or professional development um, through to the one-on-one with your with your um, you know students and I'm assuming parents as well. Yeah, yeah, and it also it all integrates and links in somewhere. I think that that's you know no no part of the role is sort of done in isolation from the other parts and I think that that's where you can be the most impactful um, is when, you know, a a lot of what we do in psychology in general, particularly with young people, is psychoeducation and there's so many ways that we can deliver that when we're in a school context. We can deliver it one-on-one, we can do it in year-level assemblies, we can do it in presentations, we can do it to train staff to understand that so that they can support students or parents to be able to support their children. Um, You know, because a lot of what we, the the one-on-one counselling, a lot of that sits at that subclinical level. Um, And we do have a lot of students present with issues that we can help them sort of work through without it needing to be, you know, a referral that goes out into the community where the wait lists are pretty pretty crazy at the moment actually it's quite disheartening um how how long it can take but um you know what we're hoping to do in that preventative model is to equip the students with those skills when they first start to experience some discomfort or distress and and help them not get to that point um you know that that's something that i think in schools we do really really well um it, it's it's hard to measure because you never know what you've prevented. Um, that that's there's no there's no metric around that. So you know you do kind of hope that what you're doing is helpful. But I think you know having psychologists in school to support some of those early develop developing issues, if that takes some of the pressure off that community sector, that's that's really important for us to be able to do that. But it, it involves you know, work and, and us bringing our knowledge of psychology, of human behaviour, of systems, of relationships and bringing that in and integrating that at all levels in the system, not just at that point of distress. It's a really good point that you bring forward and I know that it's always hard to, to, to measure what's the uh, affect and, and clearly we know there's there's an immense value in, in, in uh, having uh, those support networks particularly that psychology brings in a, in a school. It's just difficult to, to measure. Um, you know, the only measure we would really probably do is to, to remove psychologists out and see what happens. Um, <laughs> that might be, you know, uh, yeah. problematic. Um, but as you say, the, the, the other big picture is, is um, 
you know, ensuring that, that that support is there so it remains in that subclinical uh, space and it doesn't require mm -hmm. a referral on because it, it's already, as you mentioned, you know, somewhat bursting at the seams, the, 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 yeah. the private sector, the community sector. It's hard to go out and, and refer on because those waiting times can be um, quite quite significant. Um, is that something that you also find? I'm, I'm mindful that you're in yeah. Melbourne. Um, I'm in Canberra, yeah. Uh, but yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah. And look, I guess what, one of the things that you know, when, when we get a new referral, if it does appear to us from the outset that this is in that sort of you know clinical realm we're looking at you know this is likely to be a diagnosable mental health condition this is someone who needs a targeted therapeutic intervention which is not normally what you come to school for um, we will refer those students out into the community and they're getting that therapeutic targeted intervention outside of school they still come to school though and, and that's one of the things that we have. So we might, you know, refer a young person who's having really debilitating panic attacks and they're off getting some, you know, evidence-based treatment for their panic attacks. So they're still having panic attacks when they're coming to school while that treatment is taking effect. So, you know, for us as psychologists, we, you know, in working in schools, we will refer those, um, you know, more challenging or higher needs cases out of a school context, but we're still managing the behaviours and, and, and that in the school context. And that's, you know, that is quite challenging. We do, you know, have to do quite a lot of work. So it might not be a student who's directly a client of ours, but we might over the course of a day spend a couple of hours working around something that's happened with them. Um, and, and I can't say to a student who turns up really distressed, you know, sorry, I referred you out. You can't, can't, you can't come see <laughs> me. Um, and that's, you know, so yes, we're, we've got, you know, which we, you know, I think slowly the, the wait lists do seem to be shortening at the moment, from what I can tell. I think we've peaked now, we're starting to find places, but um, you know, it's I get a little um concerned sometimes about you know, we've obviously at the moment there's a whole lot of stuff about funding and you know, who's doing what, federal, state, that kind of thing, and putting lots of money and you know, tens of millions of dollars into, into mental health services. And I just come, well, who's going to work in them? Who like. Who are these mental health practitioners that you're having? Because I don't know any out-of-work psychologists. You know, everyone I know is working, you know, really hard. Um, so I think we need to make that longer term and come back into training psychologists, um, you know, and, and actually building that workforce from the ground up. Um, yes, we need funding in mental health services, but we, we need practitioners. And we need practitioners that are functioning, that aren't burning out, um, which, which is a big issue, for, especially for some newer practitioners who jump straight into a, a really healthy caseload and then a few months later aren't coping. Um, you know, we just need to look at what we're doing to train, train our practitioners so that we do have, you know, that capacity. But, you know, what we're hoping in a school setting is that we, it's a buffer, you know, it is, it is stopping things getting to that point we um at the start of the year I go into every year seven class with, with my colleague and we introduce ourselves we talk about why is there a psychologist at your school what do we help with how do you come see us and I always say to the students don't wait to see how much worse you can get if you're feeling needing some help now come and see one of us now don't wait and see if it's going to get worse if it doesn't have to and and we really push that point with the young people because a lot of the time all they need is just a couple of conversations 
contextualize what's going on, normalize it. Adolescence is an incredibly tumultuous time. They're trying to, um, you know, I know you've had Michael Cargreg on, on your show and I think um, he talks a lot about those tasks of adolescence and all those, you know, needs for, for independence. And so what we find is for our young people, we're trying to be independent from mum and dad. It's the hardest time to tell mum and dad they're struggling because they're trying to say all the time, I've got this, let me go. It's hard to then say, actually, I, I don't know what the hell I'm doing and I'm feeling really anxious, but they can come to us. And sometimes that's all they need. And if that stops it becoming a more entrenched issue that does start to move into that realm of a diagnosable mental health condition, then that's, that's us doing our job really well. It also speaks to the, your earlier point about the need for psychologists on the ground, that there is a, you know, there might be funding being uh, provided, but the question is what do we do about this bottleneck, that there is not enough uh, clinicians on the ground to fulfil the need. And as you say, if we do early intervention I know that word is, you know, it seems to be used all the time, but I think it's because it holds so much value and merit. Mm. If we can do something early, it might just be a couple of conversations rather than, you know, therapy over a course of a couple of years. Um, it might be something that, that uh, you know, we can upskill, develop, um, even just, just appreciating the value of, help-seeking behaviour that is then reinforced yes. and, and off we go. And so whenever we need it, we can pick up the phone and call a friend or you know, do it professionally through you know, a psychologist, you know, yeah. whatever it might be. But something needs to be reinforced yeah. uh, rather than um, letting it kind of go and go and go. So there's this big question about how, you know, how do we rectify or, or address this bottleneck? We need some more trained uh, clinicians mm -hmm. on the ground. Yeah, and look, part of that, obviously, that goes back to the university and we know that the tertiary education sector has really copped it over recent years and, you know, courses being cut and all that kind of thing. And, you know, so I'm, um, I'm an educational developmental psychologist, so I did that was my master's training and I supervise um, master's students doing their, their educational developmental psychology master's. And, you know, there's not many of those courses around there's you know we've got a few in victoria there's a couple in new south wales and one in tassie you know there, there's not many of them around and trying to get more ed and devs qualified is really important because what we bring i mean not just to schools obviously schools where i work but you'll find ed and devs across a whole range of different contexts but trying to just you know increase places for universities to train ed and devs but also you know part of that is you need People, to, people like me to supervise them and, you know, so they're trying to grow the ranks of supervisors so that you've got enough supervisors there to support the placement needs and, you know, that sort of thing. It's <laughs> colleagues of mine here at school, they, they'll have um, student teachers, you know, often during the year. And when we were talking about their experience and then my experience of supervising the students, they couldn't believe I do it for nothing because they get they get paid to, to host a student teacher and, you know, they, why do you do it for nothing? Because <laughs> we need more of me. Like that's that's how this is happening, you know, but um, but that's definitely an issue. Um, I've sort of got a position on the National Committee for the College of Edinburgh Psychologists and one of our subgroups that I'm a part of is looking at promoting the discipline and part of that is promoting just awareness of, of what it is we do because we want there to be that mm, demand. Mm. We need, you know, 
for, for GPs or for paediatricians, for parents to know that actually in this case with this issue, an educational developmental psychologist is the person that you want to help you with this issue. We want parents going, oh, well, can you please refer me to an educational developmental psychologist so that we we see that value. But, you know, I think a lot of people do get stuck in that um, that kind of clinical conceptualisation of assess, diagnose, treat, that that is how they see psychology. Um, and what we're able to do in a school setting in particular is just set that, you know, that example, but that's not all psychology is. And you can be working with people outside of that clinical model and have really important income, like um, outcomes rather. Um, but I think, you know, the general public don't always necessarily understand that there is that variation within psychology as a, as a discipline. I can very easily make a bunch of assumptions as to why this bottleneck is there, but I actually don't factually know. You know to, to me, it just seems like there's not enough uh, eager, motivated uh, people being given places, you know, students being given places to actually complete their their um, training. You know, I, I know every year there is a application process, there's a tussle that goes on at universities of trying to get one of those elusive sort of spots that, that you know, is so few and far between of, you know, a large cohort of maybe, you know, 40, 50, 60 in a yeah. smaller university um, uh, trying to maybe fight for, you know, six to 10, 12 spots or whatever that might be. It, it just yeah. narrows it down. But they're all passionate. They're all doing, have already done a postgraduate and they're yeah. trying to do just the next couple of years so that they can do something you're passionate about. Yeah. What is the bottleneck? Is it, is it um that universities don't make money from master's students is there they don't have enough lecturers out there like because there's a there's a quota of you know lecturers per student what what is it yeah. what, do you do you have any insight as to why this is occurring because clearly there's people who want to do the profession um and yeah. and are excellent you know excellent candidates to do it mm. but not enough places yeah and look, my understanding without knowing sort of too much in depth around the particular funding models or whatever in, in the university sector is that, 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 you know, that sort of, you know, master's students are expensive for universities, you know, the, the master's courses are, that there is quite a lot involved in organising placements and, and that kind of stuff and that is it is a, you know, whether it, it makes enough money for the universities to justify it. It's interesting because I think, you know, universities are more likely to put money into courses where there's a clearly defined linear outcome. You know, you do this course, you do that job. And in psychology, obviously, you know, there's a lot of diversity that comes out of that. But once you're getting into that, you know, in that master's kind of realm, there are, there, are, there is a lot of work. There is a lot of work for qualified psychologists. So I, I don't really get it. Um, I, I, I just, that's where I think, you know, I get frustrated when I read I read these articles about, you know, funding for like, you know, the agencies need it. But I'm like, well, hang on, why is there no funding going into universities? And it's, and obviously, you know, putting extra, having extra appointments available next month in a, in a public health service 
is an immediate thing and we know that immediate outcomes are better at getting votes. And I'm being really cynical there, but um, but that's, you know. Um, but it is a long-term investment. It takes, you know, six to eight years to have, you know, from start to finish. Um, and even then, you know, you still need a bit of bit of life behind you before you start doing it. So, yeah, look, I, I, I don't understand why, you know, from, from just a, my kind of basic perspective, why it's not valued as much. But I think, you know, training other mental health professionals, other allied health might be quicker and cheaper. I mean, I think it's great. Psychology has obviously grown so much. Maybe, you know, the rapid expansion of it is, is difficult to catch up with. Certainly, you know, I think it's extremely welcome that there are these new, you know, provisions for additional appointments, for example, under the mental health care plan, um, uh, yeah. better access at the moment. Having said that, that uh, does still create a, a new bottleneck. It means that yeah. people who are already in the system will stay supported, and that's a good thing. That's welcome. I think the APS, uh, you know, guidelines would, would suggest best practice is to provide more therapy sessions, but it yeah. just means that um, there's not enough. It compounds it, you know, because it says it let's put the money into more sessions rather than money into exactly. more clinicians. Um, well, and that's what happens because then, you know, instead of someone who gets 10 sessions in a year going once a month, suddenly they get 20, they're going once a fortnight, which is great for them, but it means whoever's next on the wait list has to wait longer. And that, you know, we did see, I've, I, like I said, it, 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 it's starting to kind of, the, the wait list time seems to be shortening from all well, these is just from the students that we're referring out. But, you know, when we were sort of that kind of second half of, of 2020, so many were just closing their books because no one wants to say to a prospective client, sorry, it's an eight-month wait, they're closing their wait lists. Um, mm. And that, and that really did coincide with those extra sessions coming online that suddenly you were just having to wait longer for your turn. Um, it, was, it, was, it was really quite difficult. We had families who were, you know, screaming out for support, really watching their children really suffer, um, but just, you know, that's that sort of, you know, the missing middle. You know, they, they, they're not quite unwell enough for hospital, but, you know, they're, they're not properly, you know, supported with you know a telehealth session every couple of weeks they needed more and it just wasn't there so mm. yeah it was it was a really challenging time and anyway, so we're not out of the woods yet but um it was yeah, intense yeah how does it work in, in in the school setting is there a particular ratio that is, is being aimed for is it just you know whatever conditions yeah. we can get on board depending yeah. on what what's available because i i know for example at least here in the ACT, there, there have been some genuinely concerted efforts by the education department to go heavy on recruiting and, you know, trying mm. to provide all sorts of incentives and, and, and mm. trying to get, you know, clinicians on board. And, um, you know, we, we've seen a phase where, you know, there was a high uptake. We also then saw, you know, lower retention and, you know, mm. almost back in the same same sort of sort of space and look I, I can't say that with great authority but you know at least speaking to my colleagues that seems to have been something that, that, that that's occurred in the ACT um, don't know if that's 100% valid but you know uh, I, I, I I've heard that I know that they're still you know still searching you know that they're that, that we're all kind of 
fighting each other, right? You know, I'm, I'm in yeah. private practice where we're, we're fighting, you know, ACT health, we're fighting the, the ACT um, you know, education, they're fighting yeah. us, you know, it's this whole, whole sort of thing, the whole, whole thing going on in terms of saying, you know, Obviously, we've got a, a great pool of, of, of great clinicians, but you know we we we're all resource poor. Yep, absolutely. And look, you know that that question around ratio, you know, the one to five hundred in schools is, you know, the one that comes up time and time again. I think my understanding is that was first kind of um, put out there as a name back in late nineties, perhaps. Um, uh, was an inquiry into suicide in New South Wales, and that was one of the um, recommendations that came up again last year. Um, Dr. Fiona Martin chaired the parliamentary committee into um, yeah, mental health and suicide prevention, and, and her recommendation again was one in one to five hundred in schools, increase university places, increase diversity within the profession um, as well, and you know just to try and get in at that at that level of that you know primary prevention, early intervention level. Um, and when you've got, I mean, one to 500 ratio, I think look, some schools might get close to that. Um, I, I mean, I'm in an independent school, which is, you know, well-resourced and it's, you know, schools like these are more likely to get towards that one to 500 ratio. Some schools, some of the biggest schools in the less advantaged areas, they wouldn't come close. Um, and, and also, what does that look like functionally? Because, I mean, it's not that you see one out of you know what like one psychologist is seeing 500 students sure. but um there's all the other things it's, it's funny every year when the um you, I stand there and I watch the year 12s graduate every year and I stand at the back of the hall as they come down the middle of the aisle and I count on my fingers as they come down how many I've seen since they were in in year seven and it's usually a quarter to a third of the year level it's about a third of them last year students who've come to me at some point now that's what, a third of a year level school of 800 I don't know I'm not that good at maths but that's actually quite a lot a lot of well, what that is that is, it, is it says it's beautiful you know it means mm. that the system when it's available gets utilized by young people yeah. who are willing and open enough to say you know I'm having a hard time I'm actually going to mm. reach out and and I'd you know, like to believe that that you know, that need was therefore met because when they asked for it it was available and you know, that, right. that, that that's beautiful there's probably a, a large number in there as well that thought about it they contemplated but they still didn't take the step um yeah. but nonetheless yeah. you know uh, and a quarter or a third is, is is great but it's frightening when you say that because uh, i know i've heard of our colleagues you know being spread over you know, two, sometimes even three schools. Um, yeah. And I just scratched my head because that that effectively means, you know, there's business situation where two schools. That means, uh, sorry, three schools. You know, it means two days at one school, two days yeah. at another, and one day at a third school. What, has, yeah. what, what do you do in a day? I mean, the, 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 yeah. the lack of continuity of care, of these purely crises. Where, like, how That's do you do exactly inequality? Right. You know, yeah. like it, it's just mind-boggling. Yeah. And, and when we look at, you know, what those barriers to help-seeking are in young people, obviously, you know, and a colleague of mine, Dr Chelsea Hyde, has done some great work around that, and it's things like accessibility is obviously a big, a big barrier. If, if you don't have a service that's accessible to you, um, now that might be about your own personal resources, that might be about wait lists, but it also might be just, you know, 
if for you to get the help you need means that you need to go outside of school and engage that privately and you're a young person who doesn't have those personal resources but you're not really in a position where you want to bring your family in on the conversation, um, you know, having that accessibility of someone at school is really important because it, it can be done, you know, in your own time, you know, obviously within realms of consent and appropriate contact and all that kind of stuff it can be just you know discreet and private and young people can access that support um we know so we know accessibility is a barrier we know that stigma is a barrier as well and um and again as i said before trying to you know educate the people that i interact with about the diversity of what someone who is trained in psychology can offer outside of that you know it's got to be you've got to be crazy to go see a psychologist or I'm not nuts enough or whatever it is that people say to say well actually psychologists are out there doing all sorts of things we um we we run one of, one of the things I love is we have whole workshop days with every year level and they get one day a term where they all come together as a year level and they do lots of activities together and get to know each other and learn about issues and I love working on those days and one that I've put together for our year sevens is all about just connecting. It's all about just getting to know each other. And when I started off, kicked off the day with the year sevens a couple of weeks ago and talked to them about, you know, what, what do you think I'm here for? And they said, oh, you're, you help with problems. I'm like, no, well, I'm here because I know that having a good connection with your peers can help you feel good and maybe not have those problems that we talked about. And that's, you know, educating the kids. And they see us everywhere. You know, we're in assemblies. We're on going on camp next term. We're, you know, in and out of classes. We're in the playground. And so, saying hello to you, understanding who you are, getting a sense of who you are, it breaks down some of that stigma around help seeking, mm -hmm. and this idea that you have to be really unwell before you ask for help. You know what's even more scary, Sally, is that you know we've just touched on that one side, which is the students having access and, 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 and you know, connecting and, and being able to, you know, meet that psychological, emotional, um, you know, uh, uh, need at that time. But when we stretch so far, we don't get to do, you know, the other extremely important thing, which is, you know, the policies and procedures, yeah. uh, you know, that, that are so important, you know, and, and change the dynamic of a school, the you know, designing curriculum, which is, you know, something that we could, immensely uh you know in, in inject um you know value in professional mm. development for you know uh, teachers administrators um you know uh, principals you name it uh, workshops for students all that other level stuff not just the one-on-one mm. -on -one. There, there is so much we can do and as you say just the resources of floating around the school so that you yeah. are a part of the school, that that you yeah. are, you know, you're you're not a unit, um, mm -hmm. you are a part of it, a part of that family of of that safety network, um, and yeah. even that brings about safety. You know, there's just the safety net of just saying, I know Sally's there, um, yeah, because I can see her. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And look, you're right. Sometimes, you know, at different times, you know. You get a, a new referral every couple of days and each name that comes across the desk you've got to you know work out where which of us has the capacity to take on this student what do they need do they need it from us do they need it from someone else all that and there are times where you know a lot of those other things that are so important do seem like you know they can get pushed off to the sides I, I find 
sort of having some discipline to kind of remind myself that to prioritise those things really does help. Um, and also to look at, you know, what what is it that the students need from us that's reasonable for, to, to, to access in school? Um, how long, like what kind of longevity is re- reasonable to hold a student for? Um, because if what they need is ongoing therapeutic intervention that's that's for outside of school um and so you know we we don't sort of you know in a what's like you, you take them all on but you move them all through but you're still there and most of it's funny because um because I, I you know work with master's students and you know doing a lot of that that sort of training there and we often have conversations about terminating and appointment you know how do we terminate with with a client and in a private practice it's it's quite a final sort of like this is it we're finishing up we're moving on but in school it always ends with but if you need me <laughs> I'm just here and it's and so in some ways the termination happens when they finish year 12 and you know what even then sometimes I'll reach out after they've finished um but it's that it's 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 sort of you're always part of that because you're part of their world um and I'm, I'm mindful of that with our year 12s when they start to get ready to go is you know move them on to the next phase because I'm not at uni. You can't just pop in and see me. You know, you need these skills to be able to manage yourself. Um, so, you know, being able to leave space in your day for these important things, schedule time to make sure that you are attending to these things, you are able to be available to go into a classroom for a lesson and that, you know, help out. I think it's just really important that we, we as practitioners in schools remember that that is part of why we're here and, you know really important to prioritize that mm. i can also see even a greater importance uh, if a clinician were in one of those larger schools you spoke about burnout mm. uh, earlier uh, and i can imagine with a workload you know with that that is much higher than than the 800 with with um you know say one and a half psychologists, um, uh, it must be really difficult to prioritise if, if yes. in some sense, some of those priorities are already designed for you because if there's a yeah. large enough population, say two and a half thousand, um, mm. and there are you know, uh, safety concerns, you mm. have to drop everything, everything. And, and, and your priorities you know, are completely out in that that might mm-hmm. be uh, a less common occurrence but with a 2500 yeah. workload it could be fairly yeah. common um so it's not yeah. it's not like uh, uh you know you can kind of say oh that's a one-off this week and i can now yeah. you know, get back to it's there, there's lots of those items i'm assuming mm-hmm. and i'm sort of speaking probably a bit outside of my depth sure. there but um you know is, is that is that does that tend to be the case once you once it I, goes over that 500 yeah. I think yeah, that for that, um, yeah, and look, I, I've been quite fortunate in that I've worked in schools where the ratios are reasonably good. So when I worked in that school, two and a half thousand students, there were five psychologists working in that. Oh school. wow, that's great! Um, and which was which was actually it was you know it was fantastic because we had we had a real team, we had a real collegiate team, but we also at times were a silo. Um, you know, we were geographically sort of stuck off on one corner of one end of the building of the school um but 
you know, that sort of, you know, we tended to sort of stick with each other in, you know, break times and that kind of thing because we had each other. Um, and, you know, so the capacity for implementing meaningful change was sort of, you know, I guess impaired in some way because people often just forgot that we were there with stuff to contribute. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, why it can be really satisfying when you are working in a school is that you get to be part of the, the broader solutions if you're in a school that understands what you can contribute and is, is welcoming and, and invites that contribution. I know um, I've had friends who've worked in um, roles where they go in to schools, you know, delivering under the better access. So, you know, student gets a mental health care plan and the psycho basically the psychologist comes to school to see them but they're doing you know however many sessions in a day and part of their their role is not to pop into assembly and it's not to go into a staff briefing that's not what they're paid to do and people I know who've gone from a school role where they're employed by the school and then they've gone into that just just delivering individual services like that they can find it really unsatisfying because they think well I just I can't affect change anywhere I can see that these students are presenting and they're having an issue and this thing probably really needs attention within the school but I I can't access that whereas when you work in the school Mm. you can go to the person and say hey just something I want to run past you I'm hearing a bit of it you know and you can do that when you work in the school environment but you also you have to have people who are receptive to it You've got to be able to deliver it in a way, obviously, that's palatable because sometimes we have to bring up things that people don't really want to hear. Um, But, you know, I think we've got good skills in being able to do that. But there's great power uh, or opportunity is a better word uh, Mm. to be part of the system that you have access for for, for change. And it could be just as easy as, you know, rubbing shoulders with a staff member and kind of saying, Mm. you know, hey, this has come about, you know, it might not even be directly about a particular student, but, you know, mm. you, you can still drop some gems and, and get someone to consider how, how they, they you know, might be conducting their class or whatever it might be, yeah. um, or yeah. maybe the executives, you know, how those you know, decisions are being made around, you know, mm. uh, I don't know, uh, what, what students are being asked to do. Um, yeah. 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 No, it makes it satisfying. Don't want to get too controversial, so 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 to speak, and I'm not trying to do a uh, you know one versus the other, one's better, one's worse. But you did mention that sometimes there is a difference between an independent school um, and a you know I suppose a public uh, school. Um, these are such hot topics, you know. You, these are topics you're not allowed to talk about in a dinner table, or everyone has to be really kind of conscious of that how yeah, they speak. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, but it seems to me like there are differences. Um, mm. uh, uh, I don't know if there's anything quantitative out there, or, or um, you know, what's out there. Uh, but is, I, I suppose you know, um, and I don't know what your experience is, but. It, are there differences and not gauging that one is better or, or worse? Because I think there are major pros and cons in, 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 in mm. both. And I've heard plenty of parents talk about, you know, my child was at a public school, they went over to an independent or my child was an independent, they went over to a public and, and their, yeah. their world changed, you know. Yeah. You know, it almost seems like, you know, 
it's what fits for our kids. But are, are there are there general differences or, or some? Um, look, we we have. I mean, any school's going to have students move in and out over over the time, um, and we do have some students who transfer to us from government schools, and we have some students who leave us to go to government schools. Um, I think at the end, you know, look, and it's a bit sort of stereotypical, but it's horses for courses. I mean, it depends on. Um, you know, the right fit for the child. Um, and that's hard because we don't always know what that right fit is is going mm-hmm. to be, you know, when you choose a school. And I'm always conscious. I talk to my, you know, I've got a lot of psychology friends who are parents as well and we talk about, you know, that that concept that we're institutionalised, you know, we went to school, we went to uni and then we've come back to school. And so we know how schools work in a way that, a lot of people don't if they haven't been engaged in schooling and education since they finished themselves. So I think, you know, in terms of resources, you know, some government schools do amazing things on a shoestring and I'm sure there are some independent schools who have great resources but they don't spend it in ways that are always beneficial for students, um, you know, and look, Every school is going to have its own pros and cons and there are kids in every school who are really, really happy to be there and there are kids in every school who hate it. Um, I think it's really about, you know, just that, that fit, um, you know. It's, it's, not, it's not that you'll necessarily get a better education at a private school just because you've paid a whole lot of money for it, um, but then it doesn't mean you'll get a, a rubbish education at a public school. Um, you know, just it really is about what suits the child and a lot of the time... And this is where we work in the schools about, you know, that idea of finding that that space for flourishing. And if we're going to find that space for, for good mental health and for flourishing, we need to think about what are the things that can create poor mental health and struggle in a school. And for some students, it's a learning difficulty. And, you know, we can work with teachers about supporting that student to access their learning and show what they're capable of. It might be social connections, so to be able to work with, students to find those connections and to feel that that sense of belonging you know if if you feel like you belong in your school whatever school it is you know and a friend of mine Kellyanne Allen does a lot of work in school belonging she runs the belonging lab at a Monash University and she's doing research all around the world around school belonging I'm quite lucky I get to mark some of their thesis uh, student students theses and I'm learning so much about you know, school belonging in Iran and India and, you know, all that stuff. But basically, you know, this universal thing that if you feel like you belong at your school, you will do well. And if you're going to feel like you belong, it's usually because you've got good connections with your teachers and you feel like there's people there who, who get you. And that can happen in any school. Sally, how beautifully well said, I must say. And I wish I, wish, uh, I could steal you to put, at so many dinner tables when these conversations happen with parents because it's such a hot topic and it's so controversial. And I think people also get stuck on, you know, their love of their child and and, and therefore fused mm. with this model will be the best for my child because of X when I think you so beautifully uh, said it and not in a diplomatic way but in in, in a way that talks to uh, the needs of the child, uh, and that is so, in you know, uh, independent uh, of what our parents want, but rather what a child 
you know, needs and that belonging mm-hmm. is 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 just immense. And and I think uh, I hope a lot of people, you know, particularly parents, uh, are able to hear this recording uh, because I think you're right. That, you know, we're so blind to all of this. You know, my my children have only just started to enter schooling, and um, you know, my schooling ended in 1996 at least the 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 schooling that i'm talking about for my children um well actually earlier than that because they're only doing primary school right um so really if i if i go back there there's you know 992 um Mm. i imagine things have moved and you know i scratch my head because the teachers Mm -hmm. are you know they send us letters and emails and they mm-hmm. um, you know when we go in and have have conversations or actually they're, they're readily available to talk to all the time and it is just yeah. it, it, i'm actually so impressed with our education system yeah. it is far far superior not that i probably saw it with the same eyes as a student uh, i wasn't very studious um uh, but uh you know, it, it, I think the way that you've expressed that is 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 beautiful. It it, it really is because it's trying to to actually keep the child central rather than us assuming things about our child, and it gives this scope of, um, you know, it's actually finding an independent school or a government school that fits your mm. child. Period. Uh, it's not Absolutely. one or the other. It's actually a school in either that fits yeah. the child where they feel they belong and they can yeah. have an enriching environment for, for them, whether it's educational or, you know, more importantly, I, I would say is socially and yeah, emotionally. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because all the, you know, the good educational outcomes happen when you've taken care of that. And if we've got, you know, students who feel, you know, that they're connected, they're accepted, that they're acknowledged and validated, so many good things come from that, you know. We even for the students who do have those challenges, they might have learning challenges, they might have neurodevelopmental challenges. They can still, you know, every single year I see year twelve students graduating, you know, who have just had the most amazing time. Despite, you know, they come up at year twelve and you think, oh wow, we got you there. And you know, every year there's I usually have one or two students who are on the autism spectrum who come to me towards the end of year 12 and say, I don't want to go, it's too good here, I don't want to leave. And I just, you know, you're helping them sort of get ready to become adults, but it reminds you about how what a safe and nurturing environment a school can be. Um, you know, you've got just as many who cannot wait to get out of here. But, um, but you know, just to know that we're able to, you know, it school doesn't have to be a nightmare. And, you know, I think... Anyone who knows people you know, our age and older who had learning challenges at school, and they will tell you, I I hated school. It was awful. It was, you know, the teachers were horrible. No one understood me. They just said I was dumb. I've now been diagnosed. I've got dyslexia. I've got ADHD, whatever it is, as an adult. And, you know, we're listening to those voices now, like, okay, well, tell us what to do better. What's better than what you had? Um, you know, a lot of parents you know, adults who are diagnosed with some of those conditions, it's actually when their child is and they go along to the paediatrician or a psychologist like us and the psychologist is giving, you know, a formulation for a diagnosis, the parent's like, hang on a minute, (laughs) I know exactly what this is like. And so, you know, what we're learning from those experiences when it wasn't 
a safe environment for a young person with autism, with the learning difficulty, and we're, we're trying to make schools those safe, inclusive environments for those people. And I think, you know, generally schools do an excellent job at that. It's incredible. I know that that we get letters from our daughter's school that ask all sorts of questions about our daughters and and. I don't know, I, maybe I haven't had enough faith or maybe I just haven't even thought about it enough, but you answer all these questions that, that relate to their family home, who's involved with the child, what their interests are, what their strengths are, what their challenges are, whether they've got siblings, you name it. It's, it's, all, it's all being sort of put out there and, and you know, I, I assume that that stuff is used, not just to put on a child's yeah. record, but so whether it might inform um, you know, education policy, whether it might inform the school and what they need to do, whether it's to catch some red flags that, you know, would be good for early True. intervention. It's probably used for lots of different things, but but you can see schools, you know, especially, you know, the idea of, you know, uh, educational developmental psychs, uh, I'm, I'm assuming, involved in, in, in this to go out and, and find these kids that, that may benefit from a little yeah. bit of, um, you know, uh, let's just call it love, uh, you know, yeah. early on to, to uh, foster an environment or, or a little plan yeah. or even just emotional, you know, connection to say you're safe here. Um, that yeah. means we don't have to do very much for the remaining yeah. years, you know. It, yeah. it's, uh, I can see some real value particularly in, in, in you know, in the schools and, and, and trying yeah, to, to bolster absolutely. that because if we're going to try and address adult mental health, uh, you know, situations, and this is not news mm. to anyone, um, but the best way we can do that, I think, is, is you know, to invest in our, in our schools but not just one-on-one therapy it's it, it's all these other things you know the the yeah. leveraging for example let's do workshops you know not yeah. not annually you know several uh, annually yeah. that, that, that yeah. it's kind yeah. of like i know that you know there are schools that do uh, i think they call them uh, different there's different acronyms but it'll be things like mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, classes on you know values and morals or you know yeah. Another yeah. called rave, I think it's religious education and values, yeah. something right. It, yeah. All these, all these great uh, uh, concepts that I don't remember. I had any of those. You know, the best we had was right. you know one class on sex ed with the science yeah. teacher that pulled out a you know a banana or something. We all giggled. Yeah, and, and that was <laughs> the about, condom on the banana. Yes, yeah. you know, I don't remember emotions. Yeah. I don't remember feelings. I don't remember anything uh, being discussed. It was. You know, yeah. that was our little highlight. We'd all joke and laugh and that was kind of it. And that was, you know, in some sense how we were being prepared. <laughs> yeah. But even when you look at, you know, say like our, our child, child safe standards and, you know, the standards at schools and, and you know, organisations that work with children have to abide by. And, you know, one of those standards is all about engaging student voice. And that's actually there in a set, you know, guidelines for organisations working with children is that you have to be talking to the kids about this stuff. Um, you know, one way that we're, we're looking at doing that at the moment is we've got, so we've got a suite of policies that cover child protection, child safety, codes of conduct and that kind of thing. How do we then take these policies and deliver the, the right elements of it at an age-appropriate level to our children to be able to say to the kids, this is how 
this is how you ought to be treated. And if you're not being treated like this, this is what you could do and you have rights, and you know, to be treated in this way and this is who you can talk to and this is how you can say it and we're getting ready to sort of support our junior school staff um, with some protective behaviours interventions. So getting in there and into the classrooms and helping with some of that stuff around those protective behaviours and building that culture of, of consent and respect and all that kind of thing. I, you know, we grew up with because I said so and just, you know, and that was, you know, that, that um, the emphasis on compliance at all times that shut down voices of, of students and of children who were being treated appallingly but who had learned that, no, you know, you, you need to be quiet, you speak when you're spoken to and all that kind of thing. And now we're really empowering our young people to stand up and say, that's not okay, I don't like that, I don't feel safe. Um, it, it's, a, it's a massive shift. What do you see from your perspective in terms of how we're preparing our uh, you know our uh, you know, young generation for the future and there's you know there's there's this kind of traditional talk that that might potentially say that you know kids are not resilient enough and mm. you know I'm not I'm not sure whether there's there's merit in that or whether that's just old people talking. Um, yeah. Is it uh, you know are we preparing them exceptionally well now in comparison because of these you know um, mm. nuanced conversations and the fact that these are even topics that once you know yeah. were not like Absolutely. how do you see it obviously. As a human, first of all, you've you've you know gone through your own schooling, um, you know as as a uh, you know uh, educational and developmental psychologist, you know with your experience. Um, I'm not sure if you've got kids yourself. Um, I do. Yes. You know, uh, how do you see see that that space? Because it's a it's a common thing that we hear. You know, young people they're 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 entitled. They're not resilient. Yeah. You know, all these throwaway lines. Yeah. Um, is there any merit in any of that? Oh, look, I, I'm a big believer in, you know, for most children most of the time, especially in that early early childhood phase, resilience is their default setting because you don't, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to learn to walk. If you don't keep getting up, you never walk. And, you know, do we start to, I don't know, like do children become less resilient or do we expect different things that resilience is going to look like over time? And also, you know, are we equipping young people now with skills to express how they feel in a way that maybe no one said they were struggling before and now they're struggling? I'm having a sort of side issue, but I'm having a conversation with an, an older man once at um, a volunteer job I was doing and he was talking said something along the lines of, oh, everybody gets so offended nowadays. I said, you know what, mate, everyone's always been offended. It's just now they're saying something about it. And he went, oh never thought about it like that and so and it was in that context around you know the way that women get treated by men and the objectification that we're subjected to and all that kind of thing and now we're encouraging women and our young girls to stand up and say that that's actually not acceptable and I'm not going to put up with that now that doesn't mean that there's more of it going on it's just more people are saying nah and I think if we take that back to what we're seeing with young people and and some of those elements of distress obviously there are you know, there is increased rates of mental health difficulties. Is it because we're recognising it better? Is it because there's more of it? I'm mean, how do how do you know? You just you just don't know. But I think that if we 
impart an, a, a belief in a young person's resilience. They'll often show it to us. But if we see them struggling and their struggle makes us uncomfortable, and I'm talking about this from a parenting perspective, if your child being distressed distresses you and you're then motivated to rid that child of distress, they're never going to learn how to sit with it until it passes. And so a lot of the work that we do with parents is, is around that distress tolerance of your child's distress because it's upsetting you. Mm. Because, you know, when you are in charge with responsibility for this young person and, and the way things are going to turn out for them, it can be incredibly anxiety-provoking. Um and to sort of, that's why some, like I said before, some of that psychoeducation we do is with, with the students directly, but it's also the psychoeducation with their parents as well and sort of, you know, normalising some of those things and reminding them that your child's going through an enormous developmental task right now and, yes, it's going to make them really moody and it's going to make them really self-focused and you'll be okay, mum, you'll be okay, dad. And, you know, and I, look, I have to remind that I've got a, a, a very emotional um, 11 year old, 12 year old, and I have to keep reminding myself these things too. Like, he will be okay. He just gets really emotional. There's nothing wrong. We, we were sort of talking to students today, actually, earlier today, about this concept that, and, you know, and I've, I've done quite a bit of training in ACT. It's, it's a modality that I really like with, with young people. That concept that you can be upset and okay simultaneously, that one doesn't cancel out the other. And I think that. You know, some of that resilience comes with being able to step back out of your own emotional experience, respect it, but but not be caught in it. Um, but, you know, if, if we can give that expectation that they can cope, they usually do. Sometimes they need more scaffolding. They need more strategies. But oh, I don't know. I, are, they, are they all falling to pieces? I, I don't know. <laughs> And, and and maybe the, the the idea of this word resilience is is for some people talking about uh, putting up, and there's even a question of, of should we put up with mm. conditions that are not reasonable? And maybe in the past yeah. people have put up with things mm -hmm. that are not reasonable, and maybe we're a little bit more vocal. It doesn't mean we're not resilient. No. Maybe we're just more more vocal and saying this isn't okay. You know, mm. I, I I'm not willing to you know, participate in, in, in something or stand by and, and do nothing yeah. um, because, you know, you say so. Maybe yeah. I'm willing and, and so, you know, maybe there's a different space. I just know that, that it's so often uh, you know, that, that, that language is so often or that terminology, that phrasing is often so, you know, used so, so much that, you know, we're not resilient, you know, enough or young mm -hmm. people are not resilient enough and, and uh, uh I'd like to think you know, when I was you know, a young person, gosh, if I looked at what I was able to manage, you know, what upset mm. me and how yeah. infuriated I got and, uh, you know, how I coped with unfairness and all these yeah. things, you know, I don't think they were probably too much different to how, you know, kids of, yeah. you know, today do it yeah. either. You, 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 it takes a while to come to accept unfairness for example, and mm -hmm. the question is just in fairness, is, is, it, is it something to be put up with? Is it reasonable or is it something that you're going to continue yeah. to find in life or, or, or is it an ideal that you're holding that in actual fact is flawed yeah. in and of itself? That's right. And even I think, you know, helping young people discover what their personal thresholds are. Mm. You know, at what point does this go from 
geez, this person's annoying to I'm feeling, you know, quite victimised by this person right now. And what is your personal threshold? What is the limit that you will take it until? And then when it gets to that point, then where do you go? Um, you know, we, we talk to primary school kids around there's a difference between dobbing and asking for help. You know, if someone's, you know, if you want someone to get in trouble, that's when you're dobbing. When you're asking for help, it's because you don't know what else to do and you've tried everything you know. Um, and that idea about sort of, again, saying to a young person, either directly or indirectly, you know what, I think you've actually got some tools to take care of this. Why don't you have a go and then come back to you and let me know how that's gone. I'm here and I care and I understand. Um, and I think that you can probably, you know, give this a try, um, you know, because that's one of the things that we were, especially with our adolescents as well, is that sense of empowerment, you know, feeling empowered that they can make a meaningful difference for themselves, for their world around them, um, you know, and, and part of that empowerment is, is that we they accept the child's knowledge of themselves, you know, for young people to be told when they're upset don't be silly, you're carrying on, you shouldn't think that, you shouldn't feel that. You know, it, it's it's really a hard thing when you're grappling with big feelings for the first time and someone tells you that you actually don't really have a right to that feeling. Well, how on earth do you learn how to process it, deal with it, if you're being told it shouldn't even be there? It's uh, it's interesting because so much of this is, is, is context-driven, mm. uh, you know, and, and as, as whether it be as parents or as psychologists or educators, trying to, as adults, give context to how do I intervene or what do I say in this scenario that mm. uh, assists you know, a young person, whether it's to try and help them package their emotions a little bit better, whether it's conceptually getting them to see a different perspective, Mm-hmm. whether it's sitting with discomfort um, and just being validating so many possible things to, to, to do, but it all comes in, in in the space of context, you know, what what might be needed. And I suppose that that sings back, that, that sings true back to our earlier um, uh, uh, conversation about having the resources, having the time to actually be mm. considered and, 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 and think through what's going to be beneficial, whether it's policies and procedures, whether it's workshops, yeah. whether it's PD, or whether it's, you know, one-on-one counselling or yeah. engaging the parents. You know, that so much of this, you know, needs to be, you know, uh, conscious, you know, deliberate, mm. well thought out, clinically, yeah. you know, clinically considered. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when we bring our intentionality to that, we model that for the people that we work with. I think that's really important. Yeah. What are your hopes, you know, you know being on the inside, so, so to speak, uh, what are your hopes yeah. for uh, education? Where are the, you know, top few places that you could see we could, you know, Im- improve on if we had, a, you know, a meeting with, you know, the education minister and, and, and we could kind of, you know, spend spend a uh, you know a, a week talking to them and roundtabling. Yeah. You know, what would be you know, some of the primary things that you you think would would uh, you know go a long way for you know the big picture? You know, the, the ministers making kind of global, big, large 
clunky yeah. you know, funding arrangements and so on. Where do we put this? What, what do we do? I don't look after your teachers. You know, they, gosh, they carry a lot. They carry so much. They carry, you know, that a curriculum to deliver, students to monitor, parents to respond to, and, you know, and they, they just work so, so hard. Um, you know, staff wellbeing is something that I'm, I'm, I'm also quite passionate about, um, making sure that teachers feel that they're able to do what is what is expected to them of them that they feel acknowledged for for what they do. Um, you know, that's the dinner party. That's the other part of the dinner party conversation about you know teachers getting getting their holidays and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, unless you see it with your own eyes, it's sometimes a bit hard. Although I think that the pandemic and remote learning has opened a number of parents' eyes to um, what the teachers actually do go through and what they do contribute. So I think first and foremost, we need to look after our teachers. We need to, you know, look at retaining quality staff, but also encouraging teaching as a profession of choice and, and getting getting people coming through that, you know, will really, you know, both benefit themselves professionally from working in schools, but then it always flows down to the students, you know, teachers who love their work are the ones that the kids will remember you know teachers who are stressed and cranky and and withdrawn they're the ones who the kids pick up on that and guess whose classes they play up in and then that makes the teacher more stressed and more cranky so I think you know really we need to look at our workforce first and foremost um and I think you know like as I said I, I am biased but I think having psychologists employed in schools should be a priority partly because of you know what we can deliver to say take the pressure off those community organizations but also what we what we can offer in terms of that global um, approach to prevention I know that um you know in Victoria the government schools have you know the, the at triple s often you know, um, student support services officers who service you know any number of schools but some of those bigger um, government schools are now using resources to employ their own welfare teams and they might be psychologists there, counsellors, social workers, nurses, whatever. Um, I think, you know, giving schools those resources to be able to put those those things in place is also, you know, really, really important. Um, it's almost an extension on looking after the teachers, right, that, that a psychologist could be, you know, like a teacher's aide, not in the sense of in the room, but uh, outside of the room to support how they might develop curriculum or how they can yeah. support students with you know, behavioural challenges, difficulties, learning you know, difficulties, disorders, yeah. um, you know, how to look after themselves because they, they yeah. are effectively the sort of surrogate parents, aren't they? Well, that's that's the thing, you know. It's in, in loco parentis. That's like you are acting as the parent when you are at the school. And I think, you know, for us to be able to support teachers, you know, that's one one of the things that that's the beauty of having an Ed and Dev on staff is that because we do have that in depth training in learning difficulties and and learning disorders, but combining with the mental health side of things, that you know, we can go to a teacher and help them understand why this child who has this diagnosed learning difficulty or this developmental disorder, why that means you're seeing this behaviour and what are reasonable expectations to have 
of the student, but also as yourself as a teacher. You know, if you've got a child who's got, you know, severe ADHD and they're not medicated yet and you think that you should be able to help them focus, <laughs> it's not that easy. And so sometimes for us to be able to take that knowledge that we have of, of these of these conditions and of these difficulties and help the teachers understand what that looks like functionally in the classroom, um, you know, help them keep those expectations of themselves and of the students within what's reasonable and then offer support for strategies and that kind of thing. I think that's that's a really important role that we play, both for the students that we work with individually and, and those that we don't. We're, we're almost going back to that, that conversation of how do you fix our health system and it's you know, nursing. You know, let's, yeah. let's have more people on the ground who do that physical uh, you know, uh, hour to hour, minute to minute care, yeah. um, and it doesn't mean that there aren't incredible doctors and and consultants who come in and, I mean, they almost work on data, don't they? They 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 send out pathology, they look at the pathology, they they recommend the next test, and and they, you know, in many ways, you know, they often don't even necessarily need to see patients in many conditions you know because they're they're data driven um and so they should be the evidence base is there um but therefore you know it means that the 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 lifeblood of the hospital is in actual fact the administrators and 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 the nursing you know who get it all done uh while Mm -hmm. you know the doctor does their rounds twice a day and i'm certainly not taking anything away from the doctors they're they're incredible and brilliant um i mean i think the whole package is but if we're going to talk about the lifeblood of of a school, um, you know, schools are full of teachers. That's the primary yeah. staff, right? And 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 if yeah. you're going to look after kids, you've got to look after the school, you know, which is the staff. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that with more psychologists? You know, is, is at mm-hmm. least one uh, tool. Yeah. Um, but you know, administrative and and, and and you know all the other aspects as well. Uh, it's beautiful that you say that. So so easily and swiftly um, that, that that's what comes to mind because it, it just rings so true the, the, the moment you said it. Yeah, I look, I think, you know, our education is such a, a central part of our, of our community um, and that's one thing that I'm, I'm sort of mindful of that schools can be sometimes, you know, a one-stop shop for all of your, all of your community and social needs. Um, you know, so working in with those referral networks is really important and making sure that, you know, that school is able to, bottom line, you know, deliver its core business, which is education. Um, you know, sometimes there's criticisms of different, you know, initiatives that come in and different packages and stuff that, okay, well, you know, teachers are supposed to be delivering this national curriculum, but they also need to be teaching about consent. They need to be able to teach about you know, all these other sorts of things, well, hang on, where, where does this all happen? So being able to engage with, you know, agencies that can support that in a school so that teachers are able to get on with, with that core business of teaching the kids but, you know, not being sort of disenfranchised from some of that, those bigger social pictures too because that, that we're all humans living in the world mm. together. We all, you know, and it's amazing actually sometimes we get, you know, we'll get speakers in to come and talk to the students and so often, you know, about a range of different issues and so often it's staff come to us afterwards and go, I just got so much out of that, um, you know, because it resonates for them too because they are just, you know, humans in the world. Yeah, yeah. 
let's uh, you know professional development for 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 the teachers because they are doing so much of the the parenting really. Sally, yeah. I could I could talk to you for um, forget hours. Yeah. I, I think for months <laughs> um, and and yeah. and you know hopefully solve the world's problems. Um, I think yeah. we've done some of that today, at least in education. Yeah. Um, but I think there's some real, real genuine takeaways uh, in 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 all of what 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 you've said. And um, I just want to thank you as well for for taking the time. And I think you know, in in some way, uh, you know, uh, being uh, you know in your own way an ambassador for you know educational developmental psychs. You know, I think there's a lot for us to 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 do as psychologists and in particular in your stream um you know it's ground roots sort of um intervention and and you know i think we've got to go out and fund that aspect uh, as much as we do um you know with the teachers because it you know it all works it works together and um you know i just hope we can continue to have voices like yours um that are talking to uh, you know those those you know uh, above so to speak um, or decision makers and and you know also acknowledging they're actually genuinely trying to do the best the best thing and and yeah. and, and, and you know when they do um, have ideas you know it's always hard yeah. to figure out how does it actually play out on the ground but you know it, it seems to me that the education system is far superior than it was when I was going through um, mm. Maybe not fast beer is, is not fair because um, uh, it we doesn't mean that anyone right. do it wrong. But I, I just think we've, we, 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 it's more nuanced and it's more considered yeah. Um, yeah. because maybe, you know, we're just in a different time of history so we can. Mm. Um, but those teachers and, and, and schools did a fabulous job as well. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I think, I think there's a lot to be hopeful for. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, identify we've identified some some uh, areas to to examine and explore. Which you know, hopefully, if that conversation continues on, it it keeps informing. How do we do this better? Um, yeah, you know that that we've we've got a good product, but but let, let, let's aim for an excellent product. Yeah, for sure. Great. Thank you again, Sally, and uh, yeah, all, all the best. And I'll have to uh, come and come and meet you for a coffee next time in Melbourne. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Mesh. Take care. Okay, thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.